Believe it or not, this is the last sermon of our series, Upside Down Kingdom. And for about three months, we have been going section by section through every single part of this sermon, um, known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, um, which is kind of an intense discipleship uh, that Jesus gives his disciples right before he sends them into the world as people that will bring heaven to earth, uh, as people that will bring heaven to earth as they love him above everything else and as they love other people above everything else. What is interesting, though, about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's almost like a piece of literature. It's a well-known piece of literature. It's a piece of, it's a piece of literature that is admired and respected, uh, not just by believers, but by all kinds of peoples, and believe it or not, by all kinds of religions, right? So Stanley Jones, which he was a Methodist theologian missionary in the 1800s, tells about this conversation that has with a Hindu professor and a Muslim teacher. And they were talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what the Hindu professor told them. The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross I love. And, I'm, and I am drawn to it. Yet he never left Hinduism. The Muslim teacher told him, when I read, or when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I could not stop crying. Yet, he never stopped being a Muslim. Now, the reason why I'm using this here is because it is possible for every single one of us to understand the Sermon on the Mount... To be attracted to the Sermon on the Mount, to be moved by the Sermon on the Mount, and yet not be transformed by it. Let me say that again. It is possible for you to hear the Sermon on the Mount, understand it, and be attracted to it, be moved by it, and yet not be transformed by it. And I think that's part of the reason why we needed to spend three months digging into this section of the Scripture. We did not spend three months in this section of the Scripture for you to just have an experience with the Sermon on the Mount, but for you to be transformed by the powerful words of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I think that the way we got to frame or see the Sermon on the Mount is simple as this. This sermon is to be lived out, is to be applied, not just admired. This sermon is supposed to impact the way you live your life, not just be attracted to it. And what Jesus is about to do here in Matthew chapter 7, and actually, um, you know, heads up, Matthew chapter 7, it's one thought, right? And what we did, and this is partly my fault, so I'm sorry. Uh, I divided Matthew chapter 7 in three different sections, but it's, all, it's actually one sermon alone. So I preached here two weeks ago, and I give you some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today. Lam preached here last week, and he did like a part two of the same sermon. And today I get to close the sermon, which is part three, all right? But what you're going to see here in Matthew chapter 7 is that Jesus tells us what we must have in order for us to live this sermon. Something that we must have in order, uh, in order for us to live this sermon. 
He's going to give us, he's going to give us here three things. Number one, there's something that we must, the Sermon on the, uh, on the Mount must be heard. It's something that we hear and do. That would be the best way to say it. This is something that we do because we trust. And this is something that we trust because of who he is. Three points. We must hear and do. We must do because we trust. And we must trust because of who he is, God. Right? So can you do me a favor just to make you uncomfortable? Can you look at the person next to you and ask the question, do you really know the Sermon on the Mount? Go ahead. All right, love the participation. Come back over here. The Sermon on the Mount is something that we hear and do. Um, so let me start by asking a simple question, okay? Um, is there a difference between hearing and doing? Of course. If you were a child, or if you had or have a child, you know that they know the difference between hearing and doing. It is possible to hear something and not do anything. Uh, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's actually, in verse 24, it starts by saying that if we hear his words, we ought to put them into practice. That's how he starts this section. If you hear my words, put them into practice. And he repeats the same thing in verse 26. What is interesting, though, is that the word practice that we use in our translation is the same word that is used in other parts of the scripture to describe obedience. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is to be obeyed. This is the same idea that James has in James chapter 1. When he describes a person that listens but they don't do, and he says that that person is deceiving himself or herself. In other words, to hear and not do is to think that you are okay when you are not okay. You guys follow that? And then in James later on, he says that to listen and to not to do is to not experience, and I'm paraphrasing here, is to not experience freedom or the blessings of obedience. Now, I mentioned this, I think I mentioned it here before, but there's this tendency in the human heart to believe that when God calls us to obey, he's calling us, um, he's keeping us from something. He's robbing us of something. He's denying something from us. He's like if he's taking something good from us. But there's nothing farther from the truth. To hear the, the words of Jesus... And to obey the words of Jesus gives true freedom and true joy. You were created for that. There is nothing that gives you more joy. There is nothing that gives you more blessing. There is nothing that gives you more freedom than to put into practice what Jesus says. Psalm 119. I delight in your law. That's for you to tweet. I delight. I'm not, I'm not assuming that everyone has a tweeting account here, but just in case. I delight in your decrees. And I think that the biblical reason is so simple. God's law, God's decrees, God's words are simply a description of his character. And if God is good, as the Bible says he is, 
then everything or anything he requests of you is always good. Even if it's painful and even if it's difficult. So I want you to hear D.A. Carson talk to, talking about what a Christian looks like, what a Christianity looks like. What then is essential? What, is, what then is the essential characteristic of a true believer? It is not loud profession, nor spectacular spiritual triumphs, nor declarations of great spiritual experience. Rather, his chief characteristic is obedience. The Father's will is not simply admired, discussed, praised, debated. It is done. It is not theologically analyzed, nor congratulated for its high ethical tones. It is done. That's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. Obedience. Now, here's another one from John Stott. I don't think I sent this one in. The question is not whether we say, we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus. Nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are staffed with his teachings. But whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our lives major realities. So the reason why we have spent three months going through this section of Scripture is because you need to apply this to your life. Actually, what Jesus is going to say right now is that that's the difference between a wise person and a foolish person. A wise man and a foolish man. See, the word wise in the Bible usually is translated as someone that has understanding. Is someone that has the understanding of who God is and what he likes. Is that someone that has the understanding that whatever God requires is always good. Therefore, put it into practice, he says. But the foolish person or the fool, the Bible is, in the Bible is usually described of someone that, has, that lacks understanding. That is thoughtless. That is self-centered. That is indifferent to God. Therefore, Putting into practice what God says doesn't make any sense. So I think that there are two implications from that verse. Number one, and I want you to listen to me really well, okay? Number one is that there is no obedience without understanding. There is no obedience without understanding. You must understand who God is and what he does. You guys remember the parable of the seeds? And it tells you that there was one person that gave a lot of fruit. And the text says that the person that gave a lot of fruit was the one that heard and understood the word of God. The implication for this one is that Christianity is a thinking religion. Listen, I'm not against emotions, as you could tell. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not against experiences. I'm a Latino, for goodness sake. No issues there. But Christianity is a religion in which that requires thinking. It's a thinking system of beliefs. We put into practice because we understand who God is and what he does. So a few weeks ago in the contemporary service, I was talking about prayer. I preached about prayer. And one of my arguments is that we pray because it's the most intelligent thing you could do. You know why? 
Because if God is who the Bible says he is, and he is, then he is in control of everything. He works providentially. He is merciful. He is full of grace. He speaks and he listens. Why wouldn't I pray? It's the most intelligent thing I could do. I have no control and he does. I am limited and he's not. He's got everything and in his hand and I don't. Why wouldn't I pray? It's the most intelligent thing I could do. Therefore, without understanding, there is no obedience. Without understanding, there is no obedience. Therefore, you must know your God. The second implication is that there is no obedience without you and I be willing to surrender our will. It is impossible to claim that we're going to be able to, to, to put into practice what Jesus says if we are not willing to surrender our will. So let me read this one from, from Daniel Doriani, which is the professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, which is the seminary I gradu graduated from. And this is what he says. If we truly confess Jesus is Lord, we must also be willing to bend our will to his, even if his directives seem unpleasant or foolish to us. The test of loyalty, the test of our submission to the Lord comes when his will crosses my will. We truly obey to God whenever we obey a command that requires painful or strange actions. Is when you allow his will to cross your will. And he makes this crazy interesting argument. Because he says that for many of us, we have this tendency to confuse agreement with obedience. Yeah, this is the, so I'm going to use one of the illustrations from my daughters, all right? Um, so I tell them, go clean the room, right? Now, they, both of us understand that that room needs to be cleaned. That's clear. Both of us know that the room is going to look better if it's cleaned. Both of us understand that there won't be roaches or anything like that if they clean the room. We have this understanding, and they say, yes, that's a good idea. That's an agreement. But they don't do it. And I think that many of us do the same thing. I think that many of us agree with God theologically or cognitively, but not in practice. So what Daniel Doriani says is that we have, we have developed this thing called selective obedience. Obedience to the commands we happen to like but not to the ones we don't like. And that kind of, kind of obedience is not obedience at all. So then he invites us to do something. He invites us to open our Bibles and see how obedient we are to those verses we never underline. That's a good assessment. Check how obedient you are to the verses you don't underline. Wilbur Rees wrote an, a poem that I think talks really clear what this looks like when we struggle with obedience. When we agree with God, but we don't obey God. And it's a little bit confrontational, so please 
Don't cry, all right? He calls it $3 worth of God. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Isn't that a painful poem? And I think that we all struggle with that. I think that many of us here, maybe not all, but many of us here agree with God theologically, cognitively, but we have a hard time putting it into practice. Agreement does not equal obedience. And what Jesus wants from us as he preaches this beautiful sermon, he wants us to hear and do. He wants us to hear and do. Question, why is this so difficult then? Why is it that obedience, like full obedience, not every now and then, not agreement, like full obedience, why full obedience is so difficult? Well, I think that this leads me to my second point. We struggle with obedience because at the end of the day, deep down in our hearts, there's still a section in our hearts in which we struggle with trusting him. Therefore, we are called to do because we trust. And I'm getting this from this metaphor that, uses, that Jesus is using in verses 24 and 26. He talks about building a house on the rock, right? And that's the example of a wise person. And then he talks about building a house on the sand, verse 26. And that's what a foolish person would do. But the interesting word there is the word house. Because it's a word picture. And I need you to bear with me for a second, all right? The word house is a word picture. That word, that house represents what we truly want, what we truly desire, what we truly need. And the house represents strength, protection, and security. In other words, the reason why we build a house in the first place is because we all want, we all desire, and we all need strength, protection, and security. But Jesus uses a second word. In verse 25, he talks about a foundation. And the word foundation there is the word temelio. And I'm not trying to impress you. Yes, I am. That's in the Greek. All right? And the word foundation means to believe or believes. It's foundational beliefs. Core convictions. So if you put these two words together, or if you put these two concepts together, this is what Jesus is saying. We choose to build a house on the rock. Because deep down inside, we believe that that's where we find strength, protection, and security. Or we choose to build a house on the sand because deep down inside, we believe that that's where we find strength, protection, and security. The place in which you build your house, that's what you trust. The place in which you build your house that's what you trust. If you build it on the rock, you believe that that's, you trust that that's what it's going to give you, is strength, protection, and security. 
If you build your house in the sand, that's because you believe that that's where you're going to get strength, protection, and security. The place in which you build your house, that's what you trust. But what I love about these, uh, these uh, uh, three verses is that Jesus is giving us not just an explanation of what happens. It's an invitation. He's calling us to build our house on him. He is the rock. This is not just information. It's an invitation. He's closing the sermon. It's an invitation. He's saying he is the rock. In Matthew chapter 18, I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus tells his disciples, upon this rock I will build my church. He's talking about himself. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul calls Jesus the foundation, the chief cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, Jesus is called the stone that the builders rejected. In 1 Peter chapter 2, um, Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 28, and he says that Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The reason why we do, the reason why we put into practice is because we have a solid rock and we trust them. And we trust them to such a degree that we will never be put to shame. Obedience always flows out of our degree of trusting Jesus. You don't trust them, there is no obedience. So, Jesus is telling us, give up your independence. And we tell Jesus, I give up my independence. Show me what your will is, and I will do it. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what popular opinion, what the popular opinion is. I don't care what the experts say. I give up my independence. That's obedience. Is to give up your independence. You know what a problem is? Especially if you're a Christian. Actually, it's two problems. If you're not a Christian, you got one problem. And if you are a Christian, you have another problem. So everyone is going to get it here today. <laughs> if you're not a Christian, this is your problem. You choose the sand on purpose. You choose the sand instead of the rock because you think that that's a better option. You choose the sand because you think that anything outside of God is what is going to give you strength, protection, and security. See, the sand represents anything outside of God. It could be people. It could be goals. It could be ideas. It could be your job. It could be your career, it could be your family, it could be your looks, it could be your health, it could be your intellect. Anything, anything outside of God looks like sand. You know what's interesting though? That I think that we do that because we think that if we choose anything outside of God, we have control over that. And that's just an illusion. Because life is complicated and you cannot control it. I think that that's what Jesus had in mind in verse 25 when he talks about this storm. He says that the rain comes, the stream rises, and the winds, and the winds blow. And you know what happens when that happens? 
everything you thought was secure simply disappears. Everything that you thought you had simply disappears. And you have nothing to cling to. Are you building your house in the sand? But there's another group of us here. The believers, the Christians. That we think we built our house on the rock. The problem is that when the rain comes, the stream rises and the wind blows, things get complicated and obedience looks difficult. And somehow in our hearts, obedience looks more like a suggestion rather than a command. This is what I want you to see. That everyone gets the storm. Did you notice that? Everyone gets the storm. There are no exceptions. And it's only when you get the storm that you actually get to see if you built your house and the sand or if you truly believed in the rock. It is only when we get the storm. Many times, only in the midst of the storm is when you get to see what your foundation truly is, what you truly trust. It is only in the midst of the storm that many of us get to see how much we need Jesus. You know, as painful as the storm is, as painful as that is, it is always a good reminder of how vulnerable we are, how weak we are, how needy we are, how tiny we are, how dependent we are of God. That only happens through the storm. Listen, I don't enjoy suffering. I'll be sick if I enjoy it. But I'm so thankful for it. Because it's always a reminder of who I am and who he is. I've learned in my own personal walk with the Lord that it's only through the storm or in the midst of the storm that, that I actually have to look at Jesus and say, I give up my independence. It is only through the storm. We have nothing when I cannot do anything for me that I look at the Lord and say, show me what your will is and I'll do it. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what the popular opinion is. I don't care what the experts say. I give up my independence. You know why? Because I have nothing else to trust but him. Nothing else to trust but him. We must hear and do. We must do because we trust. So the last question is, can we trust him? And the answer is, of course. We got 20,000 reasons why we should trust him. We trust, point number three, because of who he is. Listen, one thing that I've learned as a preacher is that it's really easy to call you to obedience. Like, I have no issues with it. Actually, at the beginning of the service, I called you to be generous. You know how easy that is for me? I just, people tell me, don't you have a hard time asking people for money? Not at all. <laughs> That's easy. It is really easy to call you to trust the Lord in the midst of storms. It's really easy. You know what's difficult? To actually do it. It is difficult to obey, and it is difficult to trust them. 
especially when things go wrong. Therefore, we need something else. Information is not enough. We need something else. We need to experience with, the, with this crowd experience the first time they heard the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 28 and 29, the text describes the crowd's reaction, which is so interesting. Because it says that these people heard the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and they were amazed. You know what the word amazed means in the original? Overwhelmed. Actually, the straight translation from that will be struck out of themselves. It wasn't like, ah. It was like, what? These people are hearing what Jesus is saying, and they're like, who can live this out? Who can be as obedient as he wants us to be? Who can trust them the way he wants us to trust them? Who can do that? And let me tell you why that word is so important. Because unless you ask the same question, you will never need Jesus. See, this sermon is about Jesus. It's not about, it's not about us. He is the Sermon on the Mount. He is the one that is truly obedient. He is the Sermon on the Mount. If you are not amazed and shocked and astonished and overwhelmed by what the Sermon on the Mount says, you're not understanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually saying there's no one that can actually live that sermon out. Because there has been only one person that has lived that sermon out, and that would be Jesus. So at the beginning of the series, we, we said that the, that the Bible calls us to consider ourselves blessed, even if things go wrong. It calls us to be light and salt. You know, talking about Advent, he's calling us to go out there even if people don't want us, the same way Jesus did it. He calls us to be faithful and to love our enemies. Don't you find that super easy? He calls us to be generous people and to practice a life of communion with God. He calls us to not store uh, treasures on earth but in heaven. He calls us to not worry and always trust the Father. He calls us to stop being judgmental. He calls us to obedience even if it's painful. Aren't you amazed? Because only Jesus lives that out. Lived that out. He is the one that considers himself to be blessed even when he was suffering. He is, the true, he is the true light and salt. Even if the world don't want him, he is the faithful one. He is the one that truly, truly loved his enemies. He is the generous one. He is the one that truly practiced communion with the Father. He is the one that truly never stored treasures on earth but only in heaven. He is the one that even though he worried, he never, uh, uh, he never um, stopped trusting the Father. He was never judgmental. He was always obedient, even when he was painful. He was so and so obedient. When he knew that he had to go to the cross, he did not stop. Do you know why you need to know that? Because your only hope is to trust in who he is and what he lived on your behalf. 
You only change when you trust and who he is and what he did on your behalf. He represented you. And this is the crazy thing that he spoke not just these beautiful words, but he spoke with authority, verse 29 says. And with the text, he's saying that Jesus spoke with authority. He's saying, it's saying that he spoke as God. He spoke as the ultimate Lord, the true judge, the true son of God. He spoke as God, and he spoke as Savior. The only way we get to live the Sermon on the Mount, not only is when we get to see that Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount, and he lived what we were supposed to live on your behalf, but that he also died the death that we all deserve. Even the best of us, none of us have lived the Sermon on the Mount the way we're supposed to. He took the punishment we deserve so we could be transformed from the inside out and start wanting to be obedient to God. It's by the power of the Spirit working in us, using the gospel as a transforming power to change us. That's the only way that we hear and do. That's the only way that we do because we trust. And that's the only way that we trust because of who he is. So let me finish with this. One of the beauties of the gospel is that even though we recognize that we're so far away from what we were supposed to be, because of what Jesus did, he would never let us go. And he will never stop working in us until the job is completed. That's a beautiful thing. That's my hope. Every time I see the junk that I have inside, I find rest in the reality that Jesus has not finished with me. So this week I was reading testimony of James Houston, which is a Bible teacher and a theologian, and his wife suffers from dementia, and she's starting to forget things, but his wife says that the thing that, he, that worries, uh, worries her the most is that she, she doesn't want to forget Jesus. So this is what a godly husband tells her. She sa- he says, Rita is worried that as she loses her memory, she will forget Jesus. So I remind her, what matters is not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We forget Jesus every now and then. Especially in the midst of the storm. And he never forgets you. Even when he experienced the ultimate storm. The cross. It is finished, he said. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other grounds is sinking sand. That's why we celebrate Advent Because Jesus came to do just that. Amen? Amen. How about we stand? We receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. I want to remind you that if you need prayer at the end of the service, please come to the front. We have a team here praying for you that is willing to pray for you.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, have a blessed day. We love you. Thanks for coming.